And we've just had chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment on the nations. And finally, in this uh, chapter 25 and 26, we have songs of praise of God's people in light of everything God has just done. So that's a little bit of the context for you. It's a long reading, but I want to take the time to read it. Uh, It is these words, not my words, that bring new birth. It is these words, not my words, that bring life. Uh, So I am keen to read these. If you struggle with long readings, uh, maybe try and image the pictures that it brings in your mind. So we move through kind of four pictures. There's rubble, and then we move up a mountain to a mountaintop feast, then a strong city, and then we find ourselves on a level path. So that might help you just as we read through. So let's read Isaiah 25 and 26 together. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you've done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You've made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor and a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him, as straw is trampled down in the manure. They'll spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He'll bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation at walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yeah, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. 
When your judgment comes upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they don't see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you have established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you've done for us. O Lord, our God, other laws besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You've enlarged the nation, O Lord. You've enlarged the nation. You've gained glory for yourself. You've extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We've not brought salvation to the earth. We've not given birth to the people of the world. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people. Enter your rooms. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out to his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would reveal yourself to us this morning through your word. And we pray that we would not be like the proud but that we would sit humbly and that you would teach us and show us the glorious hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Look with me down at chapter 25, verse 1. A song, O Lord, you're my God, I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you've done marvelous things, things planned long ago. Now, question for you. Uh, What would you write as the next lyric in that song? If you were recounting and coming up with examples of God's marvelous faithfulness, what would you write as the next line? Because I think verse 2 is an intriguing next lyric. Marvelous things, marvelous faithfulness. Verse 2, you've made this city a heap of rubble. Uh, There's a strangeness to that. If Liam stood up this morning, first hymn, good morning, Charlotte Chapel, welcome. I'm not going to do any kind of impersonation. Uh, But if he stood up and said, good morning, first hymn, number 721, marvelous rubble, uh, you'd at least raise an eyebrow. Uh, There's even more of a strangeness to this when you understand what is behind this. See, we have had chapter after chapter of judgment on the nations. 
This city that is no rubble is a picture of the entire earth that is now devastated, ruined, brought low. And it's as God's people see this rubble, they survey the scene of God's judgment, that they say this is marvelous. They survey the scene, they see God's character as it is revealed in judgment, and they burst into song. Marvelous. God's marvelous faithfulness. They see the devastation. They shiver at the silence. They know that it will never rise again. And they call it marvelous. Now, I think that's hard for us. I've had a few people over the last few weeks, if we've looked at judgment on judgment and judgment on nation and nation and nation, ask me, how can we delight in God's judgment when it means the destruction of so many? How can we sing of God's faithfulness when it means this devastating rubble? How can we rejoice in heaven when hell is full? Now, I don't intend to answer every single part of that question this morning, but I do think that Isaiah speaks to it. In Isaiah 25 and 26, what we see is, so marvelous is God's faithfulness, so glorious his salvation, so extensive his sovereignty, so amazing his love for his people, that he will remove everything, everything that would harm or destroy his people. Do you see that? Why can they say marvelous rubble? Because everything that brings tears Everything that is a shadow or a shroud, everything that would oppress God's people, He will remove. That is why they can stand and sing after God's judgment. Because this rubble is all that is left. It is the only memory of everything that is against Him and His people. I want you to try and understand this principle of rejoicing at removal. So let me trivialize this for a second. We already know this kind of idea of rejoicing at removal. Parents, I've heard many of you say things like, can't wait till Friday night, because on Friday night, the grandparents are going to take the kids away and we get a quiet night in. I've seen, I've heard you do that. Rejoicing at the removal of your offspring for the enjoyment of a date night. You know that? I think too of uh, Celtic fans at the moment rejoicing in the removal of Rangers from the SBL. We know this idea of rejoicing through removal. Uh, now, take moving away from the trivial, we know this too. Uh, the enjoyment of health and life sometimes can only be found in the removal of something the removal of a circumstance, the removal of the cancer. We know this principle, don't we? And in Isaiah 25 and 26, the reason God's people can sing of the hope that they have is because God's faithfulness is such that he will remove everything that would bring a tear to their eye. Now, this is why salvation and judgment are always 
two sides of the same coin in the Bible. This is why the gospel and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is so crucial to Scripture. Because Jesus came not only to rescue us from the serpent, but to crush the serpent's head. Jesus has come not only to rescue us from death, but to swallow, destroy death. Jesus came not only to rescue us from our sins, but to crucify our sinful nature. He is not only a savior, he is an enemy destroyer. Do you see how we can sing marvelous rubble? Because it shows us the extent and the eternality of God's salvation. That is why we read Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. To a persecuted people in the first century, why does John write Revelation? Well, to encourage them, to give them hope. But that includes not only heaven and who and what will be there, but heaven and who and and what won't be there. You can only enjoy the new creation of Revelation 20 and 21. Because in Revelation 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, all people, all false prophets, the beast, Satan, have been thrown into the lake of fire. That is how you can enjoy the joys of heaven. Do you see this principle? God's faithfulness is seen not only in salvation, but in judgment. Listen to This is a scholar called Hamilton. When God judges, he shows steadfast love to his people. They are saved from their enemies when he judges their enemies. They are saved from their sins when God judges their sins. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as Christians. I want you to see this principle of rejoicing in removal as we see God's salvation and the hope that is before us. And we're going to see this in three pictures that emerge from Isaiah. We're going to see it in a a mountain feast, a strong city, and in a level path. So firstly, a mountain feast where we consume food, but God swallows death. Let's read these verses again, 25, 6 to 9. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his peoples from all the earth. The Lord has spoken in that day. They will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, I hope you notice the alls of that passage. You see that? All people, all nations, all faces. God's salvation is full, wide, worldwide in its scope. So much so that even the ruthless and the strong nations of verse 3, as they see God's hand uplifted in judgment, may come to honor him. It is all. It is full worldwide. Yet, that inclusiveness is balanced by an exclusiveness. All peoples, 
but only on this mountain. If God is the sovereign judge of all nations, if he has just judged every nation, there is nowhere else that you can go to be saved. He's the only one. And so it is available for all, but only on this mountain, only where he provides. And you see how this salvation, the end of, the result of this salvation is pictured. A rich feast. That's a glorious image for a people oppressed and poor. That God's salvation is pictured as a rich banquet. Do you like food? We do. And so just as the resurrected Jesus provided a breakfast for his disciples on the beach, so too post the resurrection of his people, he will provide a feast of a banquet for his people. That is to come. That is more real than your Sunday lunches today. Uh, it's, it's great image. It is a feast. God is not stingy. It is rich. He's not working on a shopping budget. Uh, this is aged wine, the best of meats. Uh, it is an interest in the language of the finest wine. I don't know if this is where Tesco got their finest range from. But God is not a stingy God. And he is providing for his people. And your seat is waiting for those who trust in him. Can you smell it? It is to come. A rich feast. But what must be removed for the enjoyment of this feast. Do you see that? We must see that the feast can only be enjoyed when something is removed, wiped away, swallowed. Have a look with me at verse 7. There is this shroud that enfolds all people. There is this covering, this shadow. There's a fear behind every fear. There is an enemy stronger than every enemy. And it is death. And the only way this feast can be enjoyed is if someone swallows death. The only way you can consume the food of the banquet is if someone consumes death. What is the promise here? On this mountain, God will swallow death. This is a promise made by the prophet Isaiah, but it is fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus As we said earlier, he is the enemy destroyer. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 15. We read, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those belonging to him. The end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For, here's the important lines, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, Jesus is the great enemy destroyer in 1 Corinthians 15. You see him as the one who swallows death as he dies on the cross. And as he rises to resurrection life, do you know what he does with death? He casts death on the rubble pile. So that the Christian can stand surveying after the judgment and say, Look, death, where is your sting? 
You're not but rubble. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has swallowed death forever. The last enemy. And so what can he do in the next verse? He can wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think, I was thinking about this this week, he will only have to wipe away our tears once, won't he? That's quite a cool thought. Because he will wipe them once, and then having destroyed every enemy that stands against his people, there will be no more source of tears. He will only have to wipe away tears once. And so what is the application for his people? Look at verse 9. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is a song that we will sing on that day. Post-judgment, post-resurrection of us all, those who trust in him will say what? We trusted and he saved. Now we need to rehearse the song that we will sing then today. We need to rehearse that future song now. Knowing that we will look back and say, do you know what? We trusted and he did save. Um, the word trust actually is wait. And one writer says, it is a kind of confident expectation that is willing to put the times in God's hands and to believe in spite of a long interval. It is to come. And on that day, we will sing, we trusted and he saved. And so today we rehearse that song, knowing that our trust will not be misplaced. I'm keen to apply this to uh, those in our membership who are maybe feeling this shroud of death quite heavy. Uh, Maybe it's those who are under uh, the shadow of Uh, maybe disease, maybe going through chemotherapy, maybe a recent bad diagnosis. Uh, You've got to claim this, trust this, delight in this. He will swallow death. He has swallowed death. He will wipe every tear. And rehearse the song today that you will sing then. We trusted him. And he saved us. Um, when you wait in a waiting room, uh, don't wait for the doctor. Uh, wait for the king who crushes death. Uh, when you go in for treatment, in for surgery, do not just place your life in the hands of a doctor, but trust in him who will wipe away every single tear. You know, doctors in the end always lose. We all die. Uh, But we in the Lord Jesus Christ have one that if we commit ourselves to him in trust, we will say he saved us. This is the Lord. We trust in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There is a mountain feast to come and your seat is waiting. But look at this next image. Not only a mountain feast, but it gets better. A mountain feast and a strong city 
where peace is perfect, but also a lofty city that is brought low. Let's read 26, 1 to 6 again. In that day, this song, another song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation, its walls and its ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is a rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell in the high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. You see the contrast of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. Now look back to chapter 5, verse 2. Come back to this marvelous rubble. What did man consider his city to be? He thought, verse 2, it was fortified. He thought, verse 2, that it was a stronghold. But you see, what God considered, what man considers to be fortified, God can bring to rubble. What man considers to be a stronghold, God considers puny weakness. You see, uh, walls made by man, walls of stone, cannot protect us from that which threatens our existence the most. So do you see the contrast to God's city? It is a city of inherent strength. Its walls are not walls of stone, but walls of salvation. And within those walls, for those who have the faith of verse 2 and the trust of verse 4, there is perfect peace. Now come back to that rejoicing through removal principle. What is peace for the Christian? Well, positively, it is the enjoyment of God and all that he is and that he's done for us. But we are, the peace is also the removal, the, uh, the getting rid of everything that would war against his people. And so peace is the perfect description of the new creation for the Christian. It is everything that is God. God is for us and is everything that was against us removed. And so in that perfect city, we have peace. And so what is the application again? Same thing. Verse 4. Trust in the Lord. Well, for how long? Forever. Why forever? For the Lord is the rock eternal. Why should you trust in God forever? Because he is a rock forever. We trust him eternally because he is a rock eternity. You see that? And our faith is not strong because of anything in and of itself. Faith is only as strong as the thing that it has faith in. And God is what? Rock. For how long? Eternity. So what is the application? Trust him forever. Now there is a challenge here. There is a comfort for God's people here again. And then it says, uh, the strong city that stands against you will be removed. But there's actually a warning here for God's people. It's a warning that says, do not trust in the city of the world. Do not trust in the city of man, the strength of humanity. And Isaiah pretty uh, boldly confronts these people and says, uh, which city are you dwelling in? Which city? What is your hope in? All the way through Isaiah, this city is 
of man is this city of proud self-sufficiency. Its tagline is, who needs God? And Isaiah says, you need to make sure that you are dwelling not in this city of man of proud self-sufficiency, but in the city of inherent strength of God's eternal faithfulness. See what happens to the lofty city? Did you notice when we read it through? Down. Down. Laid low. Brought to dust. God will humble all those who are proud. Uh, There's a horrible picture at the end of verse 25. Do you see that? Moab swimming through manure. It is either to trust in God and enjoy the banquet or it is to be brought low and to swim in dung. It is to find your security in God's city of salvation and enjoy peace or it is to exalt yourself and lift yourself up and then be brought low. Uh, We need to notice from this passage the contrast between the futility, the impotence of humanity and the sovereign power of God. Uh, One writer helpfully says this, to some who loudly proclaim human potential, this is a counsel of despair. But an awareness of human weakness, which results in trust for God, will bring life forevermore. Human potential is nothing. It will be brought to nothing. What is the opposite? Look at verse 12. Not saying, look what we can do for ourselves apart from God, but God's people in humility to say what? All that we have accomplished, he has done for us. I don't know what's left out of that word all. I think it includes everything, doesn't it? All that we have accomplished is not of ourselves, but is of God. All of our salvation is not of ourselves, but is of God. Do you see the contrast? Humanity in this passage was, uh, we're trying, we're laboring like a woman, but we give birth to nothing but wind. Rather, God, everything that we have accomplished, God has done. As I've thought this week, Edinburgh is the lofty city of proud self-sufficiency. I think in the last month I've seen this uh, from the top down and from the bottom up. Uh, Many of you know Paul had the opportunity to go into the council chambers and do their first pause for reflection. Now that movement from praying at the beginning of council meetings is just indicative of where our city is placing its dependence. We have moved away from humble trust in God and we are exalting ourselves in self-sufficiency. And our Lord Provost tragically said, this is Edinburgh as a forward-looking city. Do you know what Isaiah says? It's a sign of a foolish city that will be laid low. Edinburgh will be humbled. Top down, bottom up. Uh, I went to a high school kind of end of year award ceremony. Uh, Lots of their leavers were getting prizes. And they had a man come to do a motivational speech for these school leavers. And it was full of all the usual stuff. 
Uh, you'll have heard it before. If you believe in yourself, you can achieve anything. You can reach the top. You can make a name. You can change the world. You can be the best. You can exceed all expectations. Have a high view of yourself. Uh, don't let anyone crush your self-esteem. Cast off that negativity and believe in yourself. And I felt like standing up and saying, what a load of nonsense. I didn't. But just believing in yourself is nothing. R. Kelly believed he could fly, but if he tried, he'd hurt himself. It is, you know, that high school motivational speech, you say, oh, it's nothing. No, it is wicked. Without reference to dependence upon God, we are raising a generation that God will bring low. It's a devastating thing to tell a teenager. They need to understand that they must not depend on themselves that they must humbly acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. And rather trust in God. You know, strength in this passage, strength for the Christian, is not found within, but it is in admitting your weakness. You know, true strength is found when you admit your weakness to the point that you say, you know, I must trust in God. And when you place your trust in the one who is the eternal rock, you know that you are hidden in the one who is stronger than any of your enemies. It is not a you-can-do attitude, believe-in-yourself attitude, who-needs-God attitude. It is a humility that says, I need a rock that is higher than I. We need to make sure that we are those who trust not in the city of man, but in the city of God? Are we trying to climb the ladder of humanity only to be brought low? Are we in our own weakness hiding ourselves in the rock that is God that we might know his peace? So we have a mountaintop feast. We have a strong city. And then finally we have a level path. A level path desiring God and praying for the nations. Let's read chapter 26, 7 to 11. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the nights. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. So grace is shown to the wicked. They do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high. They don't see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire of reserve for your enemies consume them. The question is, if this mountaintop feast is still to come, if this strong city is still to come, how do we live now? In fact, more than that, how do we cope now? How do we cope in the now, not yet of our salvation, knowing that we have life, that death has been swallowed, yet we still suffer death daily? How do we live in this city now when the lofty city still presses in upon us? How do we live oppressed? How do we live struggling with everything of this life? Isaiah says, as you wait for the city, as you wait for the feast, you walk upon this level 
path. Uh, the literal translation, according to Alec Matir, is this. The path belonging to the righteous is altogether right. Upright one, you smooth the track for the righteous. Uh, the path from here to the city, your path from here to the feast, is straight and right. God will lead you from here to there. And you can be sure of that. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, isn't it? Is that coming to mind? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. God, as the sovereign one, is leading you down the path eternally planned for you. And just because it is level does not mean that it is easy. It does not mean that it is without its trials and its difficulties. But it is the path that God has purposed for you to walk. And so how do we walk on this path? Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Here's how you walk. We wait for you, your name, your renown, are the desires of our hearts. My soul yearns for you. In the morning, my spirit yearns for you. What do you desire between now and then? God. Uh, the feast is nothing unless he is the host. The city is not strong unless he is the rock. The path is in vain unless he is the goal. But it is more than that. It is to say, even in the here and now, we desire him. Now, I think that's a challenge because I think we often think what I desire most is a change of path. I want an easier path. I want a different path. I want that person's path. God says, hang on, here's what you are to desire first and foremost. Desire me. Why does he say that? He says that because he is the only thing that will not and cannot be removed from you. And so the thing is to desire God more than desiring the removal of your circumstance, to desire God more than the removal of your cancer, to desire God more than anything else. Because He is the only thing that can satisfy. At the end of the day, the, the feast is only fulfilling because He is the host. And in the here and now, our hope is not primarily for the removal of anything, but it is for him who is never removed. We desire him. It's to say, you know, this path that God has planned is hard, but it is straight. And I desire the host of the feast and the king of the city above all things. Are you desiring God on this path? Satisfied in him? Or are you desiring other things? He says the way to wait for the city and the feast on the trials of life today is to find your satisfaction in the thing that will endure the trials. But there's another thing, not only desiring God, we see that as we desire God on this path, we also pray for the nations. It's an interesting description of the nations in verse 10 and 11. God shows them grace. They see it not. They see his, well, they perceive his righteousness, but they don't understand it. 
and they do not see that his arm is uplifted. And so look at the prayer that his people pray in verse 11. Oh God, let them see. Let them see your zeal. Let them see the fire. You know, these, it is true that Jesus will remove every single thing that oppresses or harms his people. But what is his people's prayer before that day? That more would come not to exalt themselves above God, but to find refuge in him, to see him as he truly is. And so, although we might struggle with this reality of marveling at God's judgment, as we await that time, as, as we live in this time of God's patience, we've got to pray for our nation that it would humble itself before God humbles it. That they would find refuge rather than fire. Do you know as we pray for our nation, as we pray for our friends, we are praying that they would see these two things, aren't we? That on the one hand, God's arm is extended to wipe away every tear but his other arm is also raised in judgment. And they need to see both. Lord, let them see. Let them see. If you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, you need to find a refuge. You know, this wrath is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ came and suffered and died and rose again that we might know the removal of sin and so the swallowing up of death. But he is coming again. And on that day, you will need to find refuge somewhere. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ offers you the only refuge that will endure his wrath. The language of the end of the chapter is helpful in verse 20. Go, my people, enter your rooms, shut the doors, hide yourselves until his wrath has passed by. Just as in the day of Noah, when he entered the ark and the door was shut, him and his family were sheltered from God's wrath. Just as at the time of the Passover, when the Israelites sheltered within their house, shut the door and sheltered under the blood of a lamb, God's wrath passed by. So on that final day, you need somewhere to find refuge. You need a shut door. And the gospel says that refuge is Jesus. That as you shelter in trust behind his cross, that he is the one who has swallowed death, who took the wrath that you might not. Where will you shelter on that day? I hope that you can come to be one who says, you know what, having found my trust in Jesus, I can adore and look forward to this day when I'll take my seat upon the mountain and where I shall shelter myself in the rock for the rest of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we long, we pray, we ask. Show us both your grace and your judgments. Give us a clear sight, both of your love as it is shown to us in the cross of Christ. That while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. But show us also that 
there is a seriousness to sin. That there is a destruction, a removal of all who are enemies of the cross. And we pray that as we walk this path, we will be those who desire you and find our refuge and our hope in you alone. And we praise you as your people this morning, knowing that we have a glorious eternity founded upon the resurrection of Christ because you have swallowed up death. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.